Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a highly entrepreneurial, uh, creative guy that started out in the multi-family space, has been very successful in that, and now has gotten into indie hotels, which is a whole other ball of wax, which is why I've been super, super excited to have a conversation with this gentleman. The other thing is, is I'm not worthy because this guy, first of all, he went to Harvard and then he went to Columbia Law and I'm barely literate. So, so I'm already, I'm outmatched in this conversation. This gentleman is the managing member of Two Bridges Asset Management. He is Jonathan Twombly. Jonathan, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for that kind introduction. You know, I hate myself so much. I mean, you know, like my older brother, he, that's the closest I got to Ivy League. He, he was in went to Yale and then Harvard Law. And then it just, you know, all the other siblings were, you know, by the time it got to me again, I could barely read. Anyway, this is about you, not about me. So Jonathan, tell me, tell me this. I know you uh, are in the wonderful country of Brooklyn, but where did the Jonathan story start? Where, where are you from and all that good stuff pre-real estate entrepreneurialism? Yeah, well, I've, I've kind of been all over, lived, you know, tens of, well, maybe can't get that far with thousands of miles from here, but sort of wound up within a few miles of where I grew up, which was in northern New Jersey. But uh, since leaving there, as you mentioned, I was um, in Harvard and Boston, and then I lived in Tokyo. I was back in New York for law school, then in London, back in New York, back in Boston, and then back here really for the last, gosh, uh, I guess I finally landed back in New York for good in around uh, 2003. 2000, so 20 years. Uh, where in Northern Jersey? What town? Uh, there's a town called Englewood, which is just over the George Washington Bridge from Manhattan. So you could actually see the Empire State Building from my high school. That sounds cool. Is that near Englewood Cliffs? It is the next town over from Englewood oh, Cliffs. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh, very cool. Tokyo, London, New York. You know, you, you definitely choose, choose the hotspots, man. What would you say is your favorite place? Uh, of the places I worked or sort of my favorite place anywhere? Well, I, you both, either. Well, I really liked living in Tokyo. I would go back there if, uh, if I had the opportunity. But uh, my, my wife, who's actually from Japan, is against it. So I, <laughs> there's no chance of me going back to Tokyo. If I could choose where I wanted to be and live, and maybe this will still happen someday. Uh, I would love to live like on the west coast of Ireland someplace. But, uh, you know, we'll see if I can swing that. Maybe if I can buy a hotel over there, that'll be my ticket to, to live in Ireland. So I got it. You know, I need, to, I need to go there. I've not been to Ireland. You were an attorney for a number of years, various law firms. How does one go from there or what compels one to go from there to multifamily investing? Well, I had... Uh, I guess the first couple of years of my legal career were fun and interesting uh, in the sense that I, I kind of skipped over a lot of the first year kind of drudgery and was right away kind of like writing circuit court briefs and running in and out of court with the, part, you know, with the partner uh, and, and just doing a lot of really fun stuff. But after about three years, that uh, kind of all came back and and slapped me in the, the face and started getting a lot of like real drudgery work that I didn't like. And I started getting just really tired and burned out of it. And just working, you know, 10, 12 hour days, six, seven days a week, um, very little time for myself or for any kind of life. And I, I really started looking for options for getting out of that. Um, and I had a couple of false starts. I mean, I went, decided to go back to school and get a PhD in Japanese history. That I got through the master's degree and then I met my wife and then I thought like probably my first teaching job is going to be some place, some pl you know, where she'd be like the only Japanese person within a hundred miles and I didn't really want to subject her to that. So I went back into law and finally what happened was I really started, you know, I kind of reached burnout stage for the second time and really realized I had to 
get out and start doing something else. And, and I started to become really interested in some kind of investing career, not necessarily real estate, but real estate was one of the things that was interesting to me. And I just started talking to everybody that I could about getting into real estate. And I, I kept on sort of getting the same response. And, and my, my idea of getting into real estate in those days was, hey, I'm going to go work for like a fund, right? It came from like a big corporate background. That was what I knew. I thought like, hey, I'm going to go work for a hedge fund or something like that. And a private equity fund. And what I kept on getting was, you know, Jonathan, you've got a great resume, you've got a great background, but nobody is going to hire somebody at your age, uh, you know, to to join this business as kind of like a career changer. Like no no 30-year-old man. Because I was at the, at the time I was 40. And you know, they said no 30-year-old manager is going to want to going to feel comfortable ordering around a you know 40-year-old guy with children and making him stay late to work on stuff. So really, the only way that you're going to break into this business is if somebody decides to partner with you. And a lot of things kind of ha- happened all at once. One was that I got uh, terminated from my job. This was like in the aftermath of the great financial crisis. So the, I'd been sitting around for a couple of years, really with nothing to do, collecting a salary while the firm was waiting for the work to pick up. And then when they finally decided that it wasn't going to pick up again, uh, they let me go. At the same time, I w- ran into somebody who said, Hey, I'm starting a real estate business. How'd you like to be my partner? Which is like the advice I had just heard from somebody else. And then when I was trying to figure out whether I should partner up or not, uh, I took that person and sort of trotted them around in front of a bunch of wealthy friends of mine, not to try to get investment, but really to try to get their opinion on whether I thought what she had to say made sense. Uh, and the upshot of all that was I had several people say to me, Well, look, um, if you decide to partner up with her, I will invest a million dollars with you. So I wound up having like a couple of million dollars of investment capital lined up before I even had partnership or a deal. And so I decided maybe fate is trying to tell me something. So I decided, you know, I'll take a chance on this. So that was... So I, I joined up with my first partner. We had a couple of... this. We were looking for deals in like Texas and Louisiana. And we wound up getting under contract with a a couple of deals in Louisiana, but uh, this was in 2011, sorry, uh, 2012. The lending environment was still really bad. A lot of lenders were saying stuff like, oh, we would just not, we would never lend in Louisiana, period. Like we won't touch that state at all. And we wound up having, like going into contract, getting lenders on board, and then having lenders back out at the very last minute, losing, you know, <laughs> lots of money that we invested in these deals to try to close them. It was a kind of a horrible experience, but that was my sort of my my baptism by fire, if you will, in the business. Um, after that, that partner and I went our separate ways, and I was having a conversation one night with one of my one of those investors who I had mentioned before, and said, "Hey, look, I I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I might have to go back into law again." And he said, "Settle down there. Why don't you and I become partners instead?" So I said, "Okay, sounds good to me." So we went into partnership together, formed Two Bridges. And uh, that's kind of how I got my start. So that partner subsequently exited the business. It's just me now. But that's, that's how I broke into it to sort of ramble on about things. Sorry for taking so long. But. You know what? I would say that fewer than less than 5% of my guests and maybe less than 3% of my guests don't ramble on. And so no problem. You're in good company. So the first partner... Uh, you know, you, you, I think you said trotted her out to wealthy friends of yours and they said, Hey, you know, we'll give you a million bucks. So it's a two part question. Was that because they were saying that's how impressed we are with this partner? And the part, part two, what was her background too? Was she already in real estate? So I, I, I think what it was, you know, partially it was like the long relationship they had with me and they trusted me to kind of figure things out if I got into a new business. But the other thing was that they, they thought her pitch made a lot of sense. And what she was pitching was essentially, you know, workforce housing, value add workforce housing in, you know, growing markets. And so she had been in the business for a little while. Um, but, uh, so she had some background and, and the original kind of idea was that, well, I would be the money raising end of things and, and she would be the, uh, you know, the operations person. The, the irony of that at the time, even though now, I mean, I, I, 
raise quite a bit of money comfortably. The irony at the time was I, I really didn't feel comfortable raising money. It was just purely accidental that I had these, these couple of friends who, you know, these long-term f- friends who had, uh, had faith in me to raise money, but I didn't really want to be the, the money raiser. I wanted to be kind of the underwriter and deal sourcer and, and that sort of thing. So it's funny how things work out. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go nonlinear for a minute because that's the way my mind works or doesn't work. But I would say, you know, you're the majority of people that, you know, have lengthy answers, but much to your credit, you're the only guy I've ever spoken to on, on my show. I'm up to almost 400 guests and maybe the only person, period, that has a PhD in Japanese history. Actually, I didn't get the PhD. Oh, oh, master's. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I got the master's and then, and then stopped. Even a master that it still, it still holds. So. A clarifying question. So, you know, you invested a lot of money, you said, into those couple deals, you know, where the lending, you know, dried up on you and you had a lot of money into those deals to get them closed. So what was that money spent on? Uh, I mean, that was... So we did get our deposits back, fortunately, but we... um, I mean, that was due diligence costs, legal fees, lender fees, things like that. It was, was, um, you know, thinking back, probably 20,000 bucks a piece altogether when all was said and done of you know just costs that we'd invested in in those couple of deals. We were trying to close two deals at the same time. We had the money to do it, but and fortunately we didn't put any investor money into that. That was all our own money that was used for the upfront costs. Um, but yeah, it was fairly substantial. And so when you say Louisiana, the way you say it, I'm not necessarily hearing New Orleans, uh, but it could be. So where in, where in Louisiana? So one of these deals was in Lafayette and the other was in Houma, which is on the Delta. It's about an hour from Louisiana. Sorry, an hour from uh, New Orleans. So your next partner, what did you and he do? Like what was your foray from an acquisition perspective? Well, so then that, you know, he was largely a silent partner or I should say entirely a silent partner. Um, so then I was doing everything. So... Once I kind of got my, my bearings, I guess, I, I switched markets. I didn't want to travel so far, but I, so I kind of zeroed in on the Southeast and zeroed in further on the Greenville-Spartanburg area in South Carolina. So we fairly quickly did four deals, uh, about 400 units. And at that point, I started noticing that like deals are getting expensive. And this is, this is a lot, you know, this was actually 2015, 2016 when I was starting to feel like, well, prices are getting really little more than I want to spend. And there, I noticed the sudden influx of all of a sudden there was a syndicator everywhere. Like I didn't know where they all came from, but suddenly there were like all these people who came out of nowhere who were, who were syndicating deals. And it, it started to get a little bit frothy. So I started kind of pulling back a little bit and, and sort of operating the portfolio that we had built. That sort of just went into a little bit of a holding pattern at that point. In that, that market, you were like uh, kind of ahead of your time because I hear nothing but incredible things about that market. I guess there's some big, I think maybe BMW is there. There's some, there's some major job growth. So a lot of those companies were there already. BMW was already there. Um, there was, Michelin was there. Japanese manufacturers for you know parts and stuff were already there. That inland port was already there. So it had really great sort of bones to the market. And I was definitely in early. I mean, th- at this point, if people were, you know, I've sort of, I guess, been, in, been at this long enough that when I started out, you know, there was still very much a bias in investing towards the big six markets, right? The coastal cities. And, and there were a lot of, there's a lot of fear, at least, you know, in a place like New York, a lot of fear of investing outside of those big six markets. But, to the extent that people weren't investing in the big six, there was starting to be a lot of people noticing Texas and, uh, and a big groundswell of, of kind of syndicators going into Texas. But there weren't a lot of people going into South Carolina at the time, which is one of the things that attracted me to it. I've always been, I've always had sort of a value bent and like being under the radar, like they don't really like doing what everybody else is doing. Um, probably part of that is just obstinacy rather than... <laughs> Necessarily, you know, having a good thesis, but I, I, I like to think that at least to have some, somewhat of a good thesis. But I did get into South Carolina, you know, long before most people had even noticed that those markets existed. Um, and there was, and I got a lot of pushback. People, 
told me I was crazy to be investing there. And I would just say, look at the demographics. This place is growing like mad. You know, why wouldn't you invest here? So we did well. We sold those properties eventually, doubled all of our investors' money, and uh, people were happy with what we did. So I've dabbled in real estate. And if I would apply one adjective to my experience, it would be unsuccessful. That would be the adjective. So when I look at what you've done, I, I admire it tremendously. Like 400 units feels like 400,000 units, I mean, in my brain. So in, in the fact that you probably had no more experience getting into that than I did when I got into different stuff and failed miserably. So how the blank did you do that? How did you deal with management and all the, you know, all the stuff that goes into managing multifamily? Well, so I didn't try to do it myself. I mean, that... It was all third-party management. You know, the focus was on trying to find good third-party managers, which took time. I, the first management company that I hired really didn't perform well at all. Uh, they kind of sold me a bill of goods, and I, I wasn't sophisticated enough to really understand what the really what their shortcomings were before before I hired them. I, you know, I got a little suckered in by all the attention that they paid me, and got, you know, they sort of buttered me up real well. And it was mostly because they were trying to break into that market, but they didn't have the infrastructure to pull it off. And uh, so I did. You know, I went through the experience of having to fire a management company, which is really not not an easy thing to do. I mean, it's it's easy to fire them. It's it's hard to pull off the logistics of switching from one management company to another for a whole portfolio and getting the lenders on board and all that sort of stuff. But we managed to do that. Got in a much better company. Got the ship righted, and then. You know, it all sort of worked out in the end. But I always had viewed my job as being an asset manager as opposed to a, a property manager. So really, my job was to find the deals, structure the deals, you know, get the investors in, get the debt lined up, get the management on board, and then you know, just sort of hold the management's feet to the fire while we uh, ran the portfolio. So that was, that was really my job. So it wasn't, it wasn't like... I had to try to manage these properties from afar, which frankly would be a disaster. I mean, when people try to do that, those are usually great deals to buy because you know they've they've run them into the ground. But yeah, you can't. I just don't see how people can manage from afar. Yeah, I, I get it. I was, I was kind of what I meant though. Even like even manage asset managing, and you're overseeing a first, you know, a third party manager. Even that to me seems like, especially for B C class property seems to be a tremendous amount of brain damage, especially if you don't have experience doing that. But you know, you, you figure a smart guy and you put yourself in and well, you, you figure it out. I mean, well, yeah, I made a lot of mistakes, right? I mean, there was the first mistake was with the, with the first management company, you know, but also, you know, I wouldn't buy C properties again. I will never buy C properties again. Let's put it that way. And I think, I think that a lot of people, I've noticed in speaking with a lot of syndicator friends, over the years that a lot of people start out in the same in the same mindset. You know, this not as much anymore because cap rates got so compressed. But like when I started out and you were looking at nine, 10 caps on C properties and going, well, why would anybody ever buy a B or an A when you can get a 10 cap on this? And not not really fully understanding that uh, the higher cap rate was because of the higher risk. And that even with the higher cap rate, you still might not make as much money as you would with a B property that you buy at a lower cap rate because of all the trouble that comes with C properties. So I, I learned that lesson. And yeah, I'll be honest about things. Uh, the, the incredible run-up of property prices over the time that I held my portfolio was what made the financial performance so good. Right? It, wasn't, it wasn't the operations being so great. It was that we had the wind at our backs. And uh, you know, that, was, that was kind of, a, I would say, a what one of the reasons why I, I sort of pulled back from buying after that point was because I was like, well, look, I'm I can't repeat the market conditions under which I bought, right? And now things are becoming much pricier and the risk is much higher. So it just didn't seem to me to to be as easy a thing to do. And of course, when I got into it, I didn't realize I thought it would be easy because a lot of people think real estate's easy, but I, I didn't realize how hard it actually is. Um, but looking back, I realized how easy I had it by by getting in and getting out at the right times, right? So uh, f- good fortune played a large part in success, right? Well, not only do you have a master's in Japanese um, history, but you also have the rare ability to actually be introspective and, and honest with oneself 
Yeah, no, I, I, I can't. I mean, again, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that were in the same situation, but still believe that they were brilliant, you know, and they just got lucky. Um, so I, I get it. No, that was super smart for you to figure that out and quickly. There is an obvious answer to this question, but that never, that rarely prevents me from asking. And it's this question is going to be this You will never buy C class again. Why? So, I mean, a couple of things. One is the just the, the age of the properties and the deferred maintenance on the properties, right? Even if you do a, a really good value add on, on a property, you're only dealing with the cosmetic things, right? And the problems are behind the walls and underground. And so, those are things that unless you are really, really well capitalized and just really prepared to deal with what I called the water main break of the month club, which I inadvertently joined, you know, on one of my properties in particular, we just didn't make any cash flow because every time we started generating cash flow, we would have a major CapEx event, like a, like a water main break. I mean, repeatedly, it was just crazy, like clockwork. Every time there was enough money in the bank to make a distribution, I would get a call from my manager saying, um, and I got to the point where it's like, I didn't even want to pick up the phone when I saw my manager on the <laughs> caller ID because it's like, well, what is it now? It was never going to be anything good, right? So there's that. And then there was the collections issues, right? And one of the, I'll tell you, if there's anything that made me sell when I did, which was 2019, it was that we had at a couple of the properties, the lower, the lower quality ones, we had collections issues all the time. It was a constant problem. And this was when the economy was really strong. Right. And I remember in 2019, there was a lot of kind of talk about, well, maybe we're heading into a recession in 2020. And I thought, you know, if we're having this much problem collecting rent in a strong economy, how on earth are we going to collect rent if the economy goes bad? And I was like, I don't want any piece of it. And when someone came along and they offered me more than I thought the properties were worth, I was like, good for you. Good luck. Uh, and I'll make my investors happy and take chips off the table. So, you know, of course, I couldn't anticipate the craziness that happened after COVID and the crazy price run up. So obviously I left money on the table, but I wasn't trying to time the market. I was just trying to get out before things got bad uh, collections wise. So those are the two reasons. So just the, the, the CapEx and the collections issues. I think it takes a special skill set to deal with the collections issues. And, and obviously you have to be, like I said, really well capitalized to deal with the, the CapEx stuff that comes up. You know, and, and we, just, we just weren't because that was something that we didn't, anticipate at the time, just didn't realize that that those kinds of issues were going to come up. I mean, another thing too is I think this is something that I think people don't really focus very much on, but you know, the 1970s was a period of and the 1980s is probably even worse. Stuff was built like crap. I mean, it was just it was just a period of time of massive cutting of corners by developers and stuff just wasn't built well to begin with. Right. So a lot of it had maybe had to do in the 70s with this huge boom of construction. So, you know, people were, you know, behind the eight ball all the time. But I think it was also that standards changed after like the 60s and they just got really bad and people just slapped stuff together. So that stuff isn't, stuff was never good in the first place. And now that it's aged, it's even worse, right? So I think construction standards started getting better again in the 90s and 2000s. But in the 70s, I mean, ugh, stuff is just horrible. So I, I would never touch that stuff again. Are you sure? Was <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only exception to the rule is if the property was built by a developer who held it themselves, because then they built it right. But if they built it to sell it, forget it. Right. So we did one of our best performing properties was actually that situation where we bought it. It was a '70s property, but we bought it from the people who built it, and they'd held it for 30 years, and you know, or more, I guess, at that point. 35 years. That thing was built well because they built it for themselves. But the other stuff that was just built and sold off, that those developers didn't care. So, uh, Very interesting. Well, you know what? You don't know what you don't know. Um, it's one of the things I insist on learning again and again by making mistakes. But, um, you know, I think for Class C, but tell, me if, tell me if you agree with me. It's a very self-serving question because I, I invest in these things. You can make a lot of money in Class C. And again, um, there's a statement, but it's, it's really a question. You can make a lot of money in Class C, but it has to be all you do. You have to know third-party management. You have to be legitimately vertically inter- integrated, meaning a, a large enough like real deal construction staff. 
in in-house leasing and and you're doing it in the market you live in yeah and and you have to like totally get construction and i guess in so doing then you know how much you need to underwrite against deferred maintenance or whatever but there's some there there but it just requires special expertise it you think that or you think that's just all bets are off you ain't forget about it no no that's the caveat right that's the that's the carve out i guess that it, there are people who specialize in that and they do well but i think that takes you can't just jump into that right you've got to develop an expertise and that's going to take a long time and i think what you know what i started to say before was that i think a lot of people a lot of people that i know started out with c properties because they seemed profitable they were more accessible because there was something of less competition for them. And um, they just didn't know what they didn't know. And then after having done some C properties, they realized that, well, they just didn't want to do them anymore because it was just, just too much work. But I think if you, there's an opportunity there for people who really develop the expertise in it and precisely how to manage C properties, but that takes time. So it's not the place to start for new investors, as far as I'm concerned. Having been through that myself, I, I would say, I don't think it's, you shouldn't start there. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Tell me about hotel. Tell me about hotels. So why hotels and tell me about it. Yeah. So as I said before, I'm, I'm just attracted to, to value, right? And, and to doing something that other people are not doing. And then I think those two things are connected, right? Because if other people, if, if everybody's doing the same thing, there's no value there. So I got into the hotel business really by accident. During COVID, my wife and I bought a house in upstate New York. And on, on, the, way to our, you know, we had, on the way to our house, we had to pass by this hotel, which was just perched in this spectacular location overlooking one of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. And every time we passed this hotel, we would kind of, as if we looked at this, we're looking at this hotel for the first time every single time we passed, we would say, wow, look at this junky old hotel in this amazing location. Somebody ought to do something about this. And uh, I was start, I was trying to, I was looking for, you know, maybe small multifamily deals up there that I could buy myself or buy just, a, you know, not syndicating them, maybe just find a couple partners and just buy them ourselves because I just, I wanted to spend more time up there. Um, and wanted a business reason to do it. And while I was looking for properties to buy, I, I saw that this hotel was on the market and it had been on the market for quite some time. And, you know, price cut after price cut after price cut. And I just thought, like, out of curiosity, well, you know, why don't I just take a look at this and see? And this time, having learned my mistakes from the multifamily business, rather than just try to figure this out myself, I went and found somebody who really knows something about hotels and, uh, found my partner now in the hotel business, who is you know grew up in the hotel business. His family owned hotels. You know he's literally spent his life in hotels. Uh, he was introduced by a mutual by a business partner of mine, and so I said, yeah, hey, why don't you why don't you look at this? What do you think? And he said, you know, I think there's I think this is an opportunity. And he had developed an expertise in kind of turning around these old hotels, and. Um, so I found one of you know one of my previous investors who had uh, made a lot of money from my previous deals and said, approached him to see if he wanted to do it and he said yes. So we just put the deal together and uh, you know this time rather than doing a little kind of like you know lipstick on the pig kind of renovation, you know we went down to the studs, new wiring, new plumbing, the whole works, and uh, turned this thing around. In, from this really tired old, old hotel into really kind of a, a, a jewel of the, uh, of the area um, and all based on this, this spectacular view. So when, when I did that, there were a couple of things that I noticed about the hotel and especially in talking with my partner. And the big thing I noticed about this kind of space was that there is a generation of hotel owners who are retiring or, or passing on. And a lot, you know, these hotels tend to be located in sort of uh, drive destinations, right? They're often small towns that are where the economy is based on tourism. Their children have moved away, right? Their children don't want to take over the hotels. And even if they do, these hotels have often been run on such a shoestring for such a long time that there's no money to do the required capex, right? 
So you can buy these assets relatively cheaply if you have the ability to, to rehab, you know, to put a deal together and rehab them. And if you can do that, there are just a lot of these properties out there. So, and they have other sort of common characteristics, you know, in addition to there being kind of a thin market for, you know, these hotels that, that need elbow grease. Um, they tend to not have anything in the way of reservation systems, right? They're managed in a really antiquated way. You have to often, if you want to make a reservation at one of these places, you have to email back and forth with the, you know, with the owner about when, when there's a room available. And for today's market, people don't want to do that, right? So oftentimes these hotels, in addition to, to being kind of run down, um, they're, they're leaving a lot of money on the table in terms of just, they would, they would be doing better even in their current state if they were managed properly with, with modern technology. So that means that the price is correspondingly low as well because the NOI is depressed, you know, usually by 20 to 30% just on that basis alone. So you know, we found that just by, like on day one, when we walk in before we put any CapEx into the property, when we turn on the, turn on the booking engines, we see an immediate bump of about 20% in, in reservations. Right. So we just realized that there's all these oppor- there's a whole bunch of opportunity in this space to buy these assets cheap, rehab them, uh, and uh, build a portfolio out of this. So, you know, I've kind of, like I said, learned my, my lesson. Now I'm focusing on what I'm good at, which is sourcing deals, structuring deals. And my operations partner, who's, you know, been doing this his whole life, is the one who really runs the, the hotel business end of the hotels. Is there anybody else that is... Um, so so you're, you're creating kind of a niche out of it, is what I'm hearing. Is there anybody else doing specifically what you're doing is finding these kind of undermanaged, deferred maintenance, you know, great properties in great, you know, small you know, tourist destination markets? It sounds like a brilliant business thesis. Are there others doing it? Yeah, there. I've just recently, because of posting on LinkedIn uh, about what I'm doing, started to engage with a small group of people who have also stumbled onto this same model. And a, a lot of, from what I'm gathering, a lot of those other people came to it from the the Airbnb side of things. So they started out doing short term rentals and then started stumbling onto these hotels for sale and thought, "Hey, I could do a giant Airbnb." And then they realized that that's not really viable. But, the, but a hotel is, and they broke it into the hotel market that way. So there are, there are a small number of us who are doing the same kind of model. And, and obviously, I think at a kind of a little bit higher level up, let's say, there, there, there have been people doing this on a luxury boutique level for quite some time, you know, where, where they're, they're building these, building or rehabbing or taking over, you know, sort of small inns, you know, sort of 15 rooms, 20 rooms, but you know they're charging five six hundred bucks a night because they're completely they're really decking out like a high you know high end luxury experience. Uh, that's not what we're doing, but there there are there are groups around who do that sort of thing as well. What do you guys charge? What's your your daily rate? So our daily you know in this in the peak seasons we'll get up into the high two hundreds maybe low three hundreds on a really high demand weekend, but generally we're talking uh, you know average rates over the course of the year will be in the hundreds. The, the first one you did, uh, how many rooms is, is it? What did you pay for it? And what was the renovation budget? Yeah, so we, we paid just under $2 million for it. Uh, it was 40 rooms, only 30 of which were being used, uh, plus a restaurant and bar. And we put about $1.6 million into the renovation. And we took three... We took we combined six of the unused rooms into three suites. So it's now 37 rooms plus, plus the bar uh, and restaurant. So here's where my brain goes, Jonathan. It, it, yeah, everyone kind of knows hotels or it's real estate, but it's a business, right? Is it not difficult to run that kind of business, especially in a small town where you have a limited labor pool and you know just the x factor of really running you know running you know restaurant and bar and hotel and all that kind of stuff yeah i mean the labor issues are probably the most difficult issues to resolve right finding enough good quality people because you just have a very thin labor pool what what we have found though interestingly enough is if you do something 
noteworthy and exciting in a small town, a lot of people want to work for you. So, you know, it's just something new. They see some, some fresh ideas coming in, some, some fresh blood. So you do wind up attracting some, some interesting people to, to come to work for you. So we've had good success um, in that sense, not without hiccups, but we've managed to pick up some great people uh, who, uh, you know, just saw what we were doing, kind of were tired of where they were, felt a little stifled by the, the places that they were at. They didn't have kind of the, the creativity or the freedom. I'm talking, especially when you're talking about chefs and bartenders and things like that, like oftentimes they're not being given the latitude to kind of be as creative as they want. So um, we've had pretty good luck with uh, bringing in people to do that. Um, so yeah, just kind of, I think if you put a good product out there, then people don't just want to stay there, but they want to work there as well. What is the uh, expense ratio on a property like that? So hotels, you typically underwrite to a 70% expense ratio. Okay. Yeah. And, but the interesting thing, so I didn't know this obviously before I started getting into the business. Uh, you know, so you're, unlike apartments, you know, where you're hoping to get to 50% expense ratio, you know, hotels are at 70%. That's what you're aiming at. But you're, a lot more of your costs are variable with a hotel than with apartments. So, you know, as, as demand expands and contracts, so do your expenses because a lot of your expenses are dependent on how many rooms you're renting, right? If you're not renting rooms, you don't need housekeeping, right? You don't need as many supplies. You don't, you know, that's the main cause. You're not paying commissions to credit card companies or to uh, the, the booking engines, right? So you're not locked into the same cost structure as you are with an apartment building. You know, you're, a lot, of, a lot of your staff is hourly, so you're not, you know, paying a, you're only paying a salary to maybe your manager, right? And everybody else is hourly, so you, you pay them as much as they work, uh, and you're not paying a salary for them to, to not do anything, right? So when you're in the seasons when you're slower, you have fewer people working, or they're working fewer hours, and then when things pick up, you know, the hours pick up as well. I see. Wow. Have you moved on and, and done other ones beyond this first one? Or what, like, what does the portfolio look like? Yeah, so we just closed on our second one about a month ago, which is in Bennington, Vermont. Um, it's a 77-room hotel uh, right in the downtown uh, center of Bennington. Um, so we're, we're kind of developing a, a, a target, which is... To, um, we look for sort of really well-positioned assets in the market that have something unique about them. So like the first one had the spectacular Lakeview. The second one is the only hotel downtown in Bennington. And it has these amazing, really lush gardens. It's a very tranquil, peaceful place. And this kind of cool mid-century modern architecture. Um, you know, we're not buying cookie-cutter corporate hotels that have been deflagged or anything like that. You know, we're, we're trying to stick with things that are unique. And, and I think part of the, Part of the brand that we're that we're building is really aimed at um, you know trying to preserve what's unique about these small towns, right? Trying to to preserve the legacy of these places rather than just come in and build another cookie cutter box, uh, which you know is kind of most of the hotel business. I, I, for me, I think there's a segment of the market that's very much like me that if I go to a unique place, I want to stay in a unique place while I'm there. I don't want to just go to like another Hampton Inn like I could anywhere else, right? So from traveling on business, then yeah, I'm going to most likely just stay in some corporate place and get loyalty points or whatever. But if I'm going to like a beautiful location in wine country, I don't really want to stay at like the hotel on the highway overlooking the Hannaford, you know? So I, I want to have a better, more unique experience. So those assets are out there and you know, that's what we'd like to buy. In the case of Bennington, why do people go to Bennington and stay and stay there? What's the attraction? So, yeah, Bennington is basically, if you look on a map, if you were to draw a line like from Montreal, Boston, and New York, where it all comes together is basically Bennington. And so there's about 40 to 50 million people within a three-hour drive. And people go there for, in the summertime, it's just in regular summer stuff. Uh, fall time is the foliage. And then there's, it's, there's a very big ski uh, market there. So winter sports are a big thing. So it's a three-season market. There's also in this particular town, there's a, a small liberal arts college. Uh, so there's some business from there. It's the, it's the medical uh, hub of that part of Vermont, Massachusetts, and New York. 
So there's a major hospital there that people come from the three-state area. So there's a lot, there's a number of kind of drivers for people going to Bennington. And was that hotel, you know, like you were describing emails from, in this case, maybe the owner, but maybe, maybe it's a general manager and didn't have a, a booking platform and all that you were describing? Same, exact same story. Uh, the, in that particular case, the seller was, he'd inherited it from his parents. He was running it really just to support his lifestyle. He created a pretty nice life for himself and he wasn't interested in maximizing the value of the hotel or, and it was a large hotel too. He was basically running it by himself. So 77 room hotel being run by one person with um, a couple, you know, I think one desk clerk and a couple of uh, cleaning staff. It's an overwhelming job to do, right? So he was, he was only renting out a fraction of the rooms um, just because otherwise he would be completely overwhelmed. You know, so he was managing it for, to, to suit his lifestyle rather than you know, to pay shareholders a return, right? That was a very different motivation for him. Um, but he was tired. He was tired of running it. He'd been doing it for a long time and just really wanted to move on with his life. So that's why he was selling you know, it, it reminds me of, and it's not the exact same thing, but it reminds me of like, you hear these stories of people that in big cities, it could be New York, it could be San Francisco, whatever, that they have this kind of um, vision, this kind of idyllic notion of husband and wife is going to go run a bed and breakfast and retire. <laughs> and it turns out to be there because they're working harder than they've ever worked in their life. And it, you're not exactly enjoying, you know, Mendocino or you're not at or Bar Harbor or all of a sudden you're working your tukasa. Yeah. I mean, and this is the thing, like the, you know, what, when I describe to people why, the, why there's a lot of opportunity to be buying these hotels, uh, you know, it's because no, nobody is retiring from their job on Wall Street or as a, you know, as a lawyer in New York to go and run a 50 room hotel, right? That, you know, if they have that dream, they're talking about, like you said, it's like the five room, you know, Victorian mansion, you know, that, that they think is going to be easy to run. They're not taking on the job of like running a big hotel business. So the only people who are going to be buying these assets, like I said, are people who have like, you know, the expertise that I have to syndicate a deal and the expertise that my partner has you know, to run a hotel and stabilize it, then we've created the value. And then once it's renovated and stabilized, then there's a market of people who want to take over those hotels, you know, who are building their own portfolios, you know, who have professional management, you know, like an infrastructure set up, or who maybe want to buy their first hotel, but they're buying one that's fully operational, right? So there's more people willing to buy them from us than are willing to buy in our position, right? That's kind of like the value proposition. Wow. So. Describe me again about the buyer profile for this kind of asset. For the kind of assets, I mean, when we're buying them or no, after we sell them? Yeah, after you, after you stabilize them and improve them and optimize them, what's, the, what's your exit? You know, who do you exit to? Yeah, I mean, the exit there is to one of these families that owns hotels as a business, okay. right? And wants to expand their portfolio or what we're aiming to do is sell an entire portfolio probably to a bigger player, to, to a hospitality company. So we're, we're looking to, to build a, a brand that will be recognized in the region that a hospitality can look at and say, look, they've already done all the hard work of creating the brand. We just have to buy it from them. So that's one of the potential exits as well. Probably the one that we're leaning to, to creating. So build a portfolio of you know, 20, 25 of these things and then dial in the management, you know, get the infrastructure set up, have it really be you know, a business with enterprise value and then sell the whole business. Mm. Okay. What's the acquisition market look like? How, how do you find the deals? That's really what I want to ask. Yeah. So finding the deals, I mean, so this is just sort of like another interesting thing about these, this market. What I found is that a lot of these hotels, you know, again, these, so these are mom and pop sellers, right? When they think to sell a hotel and they've just been running you know, their hotel, this is their whole kind of existence, they just use their network, right? And so typically the brokers that they're going to are, you know, in some cases, we've seen them listed with just you know, single family home brokers, or, or maybe there's a local commercial broker that 
they list it with, who sells all the commercial stuff in the area, but they're not hotel brokers per se. And these, uh, these brokers don't tend to have really long buyers lists. So what they do is they just put them on Craxi and LoopNet. And so that's, that's where we found them. You know, we, we, we are going to start to engage more in trying to find deals off market. But for the time being, we've actually been able to find attractive properties just on LoopNet and Craxi. Go ahead. And, and occasionally, and occasionally on some of the regional, like the, the regional commercial, like sort of the larger commercial brokerages in the region might have something like this. So they'll, they'll, they're starting to reach out to us as well as kind of the word gets out that what we're doing. They being listed on LoopNet or Crexy, uh, is there a lot of competition or is it still like just this asset class that just, you just don't have a big pool of buyers and they're endeavoring to do what you're doing? Yeah, it's that. I mean, we, there is some competition and I mean, I do, I do see a deal that I'm following and then one day I get a notification it's under contract. I'm like, you know, damn, I didn't move fast enough on that. But by and large, as I said, you know, this is, we're talking about pretty heavy lifts here, right? So, in addition to putting together the money to buy these things, then you've got to rehab them. And I think that that's just a smaller universe of people who A, can do it and B, are willing to do it. Makes uh, a tremendous amount of sense. What's, what kind of debt do you get for them? So it's very, that's one of the reasons why it's also hard to buy these things. It's very hard to get debt, especially these days on these hotels, because you're really buying them on pro forma. You're not... Uh, the cash flow that they're generating currently is usually not sufficient to, to pay a bank loan. So banks are not all that interested. Uh, once we exit, obviously, we're going to have a stabilized asset. Those are going to be much easier to finance. Um, but these kind of value-add deals are hard to finance. So we're either doing them in cash or doing seller financing. And wow. increasingly, the sellers... I would say when I started out, sellers were not interested in seller financing because they still thought that somebody could get a bank loan. I think most sellers now realize that there really isn't any bank debt available for these deals. So if they're not willing to consider seller financing, they're just really not going to be able to sell their asset. What, what, what's a typical, well, typical, you're, you, you're not in tons of deals, but a, a couple that you've done, what kind of interest rate do you have to pay? What's the ballpark? So, I mean, this is pretty consistent with what I've heard from other people as well, but we were able to get seller financing in the 5% range. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is too, if you think about it, like, why is a bank charging you 9%, right? Because, well, they're borrowing at 5%. Right, six percent, and they're taking yeah. the spread. You know, for the seller, they're borrowing. Their their cost of capital is zero, so it's a it's a real five percent interest rate to them. So they're generally happy with that. And I think I think the way that a lot of sellers will look at this is, well, seller financing is not only a way to get your full asking price, but it's also a way to get your full asking price plus that interest payment for those you know five years. And usually these Sellers have no, they don't have loans on the property, right? So they don't have to pay off a loan. They're fully, whatever loans they have are fully, fully paid off. And um, if they have loans at all. So for them, this is just extra money. Do you still own any multifamily? Not as a, uh, as a lead sponsor. I am a JB or co-GP in something like 2,400 units, I want to say. But those are, but I'm not the, the head guy in any of those. Okay. Uh, very, very interesting. What would you say uh, in the, sounds like, uh, dozen-ish years you've been in real estate full-time? What do you say is the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it? Oh, God. Trying to isolate one is hard. Um, I'll, I'll narrow it down to two. One is sort of conceptual and one is tactical. The the conceptual one is that it's not. This is not an easy business, right? I mean, I think a lot of people think real estate is easy because everybody has some contact with real estate, right? Like everybody lives somewhere, and everybody is familiar with the concept of like you own a building and you rent it out, right? And 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 probably there are some people out there who have a fairly easy existence doing that. They own some single family houses and they have these tenants who are in there forever, and they just pay, and it and it is easy, right? But that's not what commercial real estate is all about. Commercial, you know, you mentioned before about hotels being a business, but multifamily deals are a business too. But you're buying a business when you buy a hundred unit, two hundred unit building, 
right? So I think a lot of people don't realize that it's it's there's actually work involved. Um, so that's the conceptual thing. The tactical thing is I think really like on the underwriting side, what I have come to realize is that this whole idea that you have to underwrite on actuals is a fiction because you don't have to because you don't know what actuals means, right? And it's really a mixture of some actuals from the seller, but also you have to figure out what your own cost structure is. And I think that when I first started out and I was learning, like, oh, you have to underwrite on actuals, not performa. I took that literally to me and like, okay, I'll underwrite on the seller's financials. And I, was, and I didn't realize that like my cost structure was going to be completely different. So there's maybe a couple of lines, you know, I can rely on sort of like utilities and, you know, maybe contract services and, you know, some R&M. I can kind of trust that. But everything else is really going to be my own cost structure. So I really need to be talking with my property manager about what they can manage the property for. And that was a, that was a kind of a shocking lesson to me because I, I realized that certainly like on the first property I bought, by relying on the seller's financials and thinking that I was doing the smart conservative thing, I, I totally overpaid for the property because I just, because they, they, were, they were running the property super cheap. They had stuff, they were, you know, stuff that was not, they were not allocating expenses to the property, you know, because they were, they had, they had a number of properties. They were doing it all at like the, their corporate level. You know, so their financials didn't reflect the true cost of operating the property at all. You know, so stuff like that that I just didn't, didn't understand at the time. So that, that was a big, a big lesson and, and something that I, I, I coached as well. And I, I always hammer that to my students. Like it just, your cost structure is not the seller's cost structure. You, know, you have to understand how, what, what it actually costs to run an apartment. Yeah, I, I can relate too well. Okay, last and easiest question, and it's this. How does one get a hold of you if they want to learn more about your, what you're doing in a hotel business? Maybe, maybe have you coach them, et cetera, et cetera, however that looks. Yeah, so well, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Twombly, or uh, you can just Google, it's probably the easiest way, uh, Google Troopages Asset Management LLC, and that'll just, my company will pop up and just fill out the investor form on the website uh, to join my list. Jonathan, I very, very much appreciate your time. We're up on uh, an hour, so we've done a good job talking to one another. I hope to repeat this at some point uh, in the not-too-distant future. I very much thank you. It's a Friday morning, and I hope you're uh, looking forward to a nice weekend, and um, we'll do it again. Thanks very much. I look forward to being back. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. 